0: Have you ever thought about what we're trying to do here? See, as pastor, I think about this all the time. But have you ever thought about what we're trying to do here? I mean, people come to church, I imagine, for lots of different reasons. Some people come because there are business connections to be made. Some people come because they think it's going to help their marriage or it's going to help them raise their children. Some people come because that's where their friends are. Some people come because they like the music. But what really are we trying to do here? What is the point of a church? And see, this is a really important question because if we get this wrong over time, we just get farther and farther away from what we're intending to do. And so, well, let's just like dial it all the way back and say, what is it that we're aiming at when we're aiming to build and develop a church? I think there are a lot of people who are, when they're unclear about this, really don't know what it is that God uh, should be doing in their life. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. Our our church says that our mission is to engage those who are disconnected from God so they delight themselves in Him through Jesus. And we're trying to expound on that in these three weeks. And Eric was here last week talking about connecti- you connecting with one another. And uh, in particular, this is Eric's thing, Eric was wanting to make sure that you know that life groups are the way that we have structured for us to connect with one another here at New Life Church. Next week, Travis... We'll be home. <laughs> and Travis is going to talk to you about engaging. So, taking an outward look outside this building and saying what needs to happen out there. But this morning, I'm going to talk to you about delighting. Because it is the delighting in God, I think, that answers that question. What are we trying to do here? We're trying to create a community of people whose hearts are happy in Jesus. That's really what we're trying to do at New Life Church. It can be more complicated than that if we want to make it. But it's really that simple. And the problem that we have as a church, I think the problem that that people have as human beings, is they look to other things to make them happy. We're going to look to sex or look to money or look to a job or look to friends or look to my kids or whatever it might be that's going to make my heart happy. And none of those things can bear that kind of weight. And so I want to show you that this isn't just our idea and this isn't our theme for New Life Church, but that this actually is a very biblical Idea. And so, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this starts off by stating really what... I would say, is the main point of New Life Church. In this, you rejoice. It's not optional. Your heart's happiness is your responsibility. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He leads with the idea of the heart's happiness. And so my question to you is, is that what you're after this morning? Because for some reason, he talks about it as though that is the goal. In this, you rejoice. And he says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And so, the the current grief and the current happiness are the two aspects of life that all of us deal with every day. In fact, uh, just yesterday when I left the house, I uh, told my daughter, I hope you have a good, bad day. Because... You know, you can't control that bad things that are going to come your way. But I hope you have a good day anyway. But I can't just hope that you have a good day because bad things will come. And you're going to have both. And here, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, I set out as a pastor a long time ago to do... I think something different than this. It was sort of the job of the pastor to grow the church It was sort of it was the job of the pastor to have um, to get more uh people here and to reach people and to be on mission and all of these other things that are the job of the pastor rather than doing everything I can do. To help people's hearts be happy in Jesus. And I want to tell you that it was only when my heart was grieved that I realized how important this was. Just last week, our family celebrated um, the birth of uh, our daughter uh, who was stillborn 23 years ago. Every year we go... Out uh, for Frosties because on the day that uh, Marcia went to the hospital to deliver her, uh, we stopped at Wendy's for a Frosty. And so every year now we remember her that way, and we did just last week. And when that happened, I realized that you know all the other ambitions I had, aiming to grow a church aiming to you know help people be better parents or you know get rid of their anger or what other whatever it was i thought i was trying to do as a pastor i realized that for my own heart i'd better i'd better work at getting it happy in jesus because the grief of the present day was so overwhelming that i thought if if jesus is not better then this grief is awful. What do I have to offer people? better than that, what hope do I have myself? And so I think these two things go together. This rejoicing and the grief, they go together. Because if, if the world brings grief, we'd better have a response for it We'd better have an answer for it. He says, in this you rejoice. In what do you rejoice? In this, in what he has just said, this is the thing that makes us happy, right? Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, How about if you rejoice in the fact that He has not treated you according to what your sins deserve? He has caused you, He has taken initiative in your heart to draw you away from those other things that would try and offer you happiness, to draw you to Himself and cause you to be born again. You didn't make yourself born. Not the first time. Not again. He made you born again. And He made you born again to a living hope. Not one that is capsized by trials of this life. Not one that is under so much pressure that you can't really be happy. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a resurrection hope. And it's a living And you can rejoice in that. In this we rejoice. In what do we rejoice? In an inheritance. Whatever my circumstances in this life, I have something to look forward to. The glory of the Gospel is that this life is not all there is. That there is in the future a promised inheritance for me and for you if you're a believer in Jesus that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's not going anywhere. It's not getting worse with time. Rather, it's kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded... So in other words, your inheritance isn't going anywhere and neither are you because God is keeping you. He, he caused you to be born again and now He is keeping you or guarding you through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. You see, what are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in the fact that our hope doesn't depend on us. We're rejoicing in the fact that our circumstances don't determine how living and how sweet our hope is. We're rejoicing in the fact that ultimately we will be saved from whatever grief it is that we're facing. And so, yes, there's reason to rejoice. There is grief and it is necessary. This is probably best translated now for a little while, although necessary. It's not like if it's necessary. Well, it's necessary for you, but not for you. You know, I, I mean, this is like although it's necessary as part of a world that is so encompassed by sin and brokenness we are all going to be grieved by a variety of problems. Now, these various trials have a purpose. See, this is a glorious thing, isn't it? These, per- these trials are so that. So that means that they are coming into your life so that something happens. In other words, God isn't just up in heaven wringing His hands, oh, I wish it wasn't so bad for Scott. not out of control. Rather, these trials are coming so that the tested genuineness of your faith might result in praise and glory and honor. The best thing that can happen to you is that your faith gets refined. I mean, look at this. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. The perishes though tested by fire. What's the most, what's the most valuable thing that you can imagine? If, I mean, if, I suppose if there was a big pile of gold over here, Right, and I said, you know, come and get some. You might hesitate a little bit because you're bashful, but it wouldn't take long until people started coming up here to get some, because the gold. You'd all say there is something to be said for having a big pile of gold. Well, here you have him saying, "I have something better than that for you. I have a life full of trial." Because the life full of trial produces a genuine faith. This genuine faith is gold. Better than gold. Because that genuine faith results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. So you get to the end of your life there will be praise and glory and honor because you have trusted in the resurrection of Jesus. And so it results in genuine faith that itself then results in praise, glory, and honor. And so you have You have something amazing that is coming from these trials and that gives you a reason to rejoice. You're rejoicing in the hope that you have because of the trial, but even the trial itself gives you a reason to rejoice. That there's something coming that makes the trial worthwhile. And then he transitions to say this. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. Peter is the one writing this letter to, uh, to, to Christians that are scattered, that are immigrants all throughout the known world and he's writing this letter wanting it to get circulated so that they get encouragement from it and peter has experience with this you see peter was there after jesus rose from the grave in a locked room but thomas wasn't and you remember thomas saying to the to the guys and saying you know i'm going to have to see him to believe him I'm going to have to put my fingers in His in his hands and touch His side. Or otherwise, forget it. And Jesus said, uh, you have seen and believed. Blessed are those who, who don't see and yet believe. And here we have Peter echoing those words of Jesus saying, you haven't seen Him now. And you don't see Him now. The not seeing is not a problem. But, but He's echoing the words to Thomas. And then... If you recall, that's in, that's in John chapter 20. In John chapter 21, Peter himself has this interaction with Jesus where they're out fishing and Jesus on the on the shore and he's cooking breakfast. And he says, hey guys, come on in. And they come in, but before they do, they catch this amazing net full of fish and they drag it to shore. Peter swims to shore and they talk with Jesus. And afterwards, Jesus and Peter go for a walk. And Jesus says to Peter, "Peter, do you love me?" See, that's a question that Jesus had for Peter. Peter didn't ask a question about faith. Peter asked, or Jesus asked a question of Peter about love. Do you love me? And so I think Peter puts this, this you know, this scenes of the last hours of Jesus' earthly life there with Thomas and with what Jesus said to him, puts him together for us when he says, you have not seen him, but you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And I I want you to notice how parallel that is, right? Like we're saying the same thing twice we're talking about not seeing him and loving him about not seeing him and believing him loving him and believing in him are the same thing see we i mean we've had like several generations of the christian church who have made decisions the mark of true christianity in fact, I've heard of, of camp ministries, Christian camp ministries. That you know, you'd ask somebody how to go a camp. Oh, we had sixty-three decisions. It doesn't say you decided for Jesus. Rather, he says true Christianity is Christianity that loves Jesus. Though you don't see him, you Love Him. This is a big difference. Because we're not trying to, to create here a set of people who agree with some affirmations. We're not trying to create a, a group of people who can put their stamp of approval on some historical facts of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Rather, We're saying to people, there is a Savior who is infinitely lovely. You ought to love Him. There is a Savior who loves you so much that He gave Himself for you. You need to love Him back. See, I I just want to stop and say to parents, be very thoughtful. About the way that you talk to your children about faith, it's very easy to to be so excited as a mom or dad that you accept their their first, you know, asking Jesus into their heart as like the thing in asking Jesus, and your heart isn't even here. But rather, does your child have a heart? To love Jesus. And a lot of children do. I mean, I'm not saying children don't. A lot of children do. I'm saying that sometimes parents actually turn it upside down and make it into something a little more intellectual or something a little more, you know, manageable, definable. I can define a decision. It's really hard to define what it means to love Jesus. Because it's my affection, it's the thing that. That causes my heart to be happy. And is Jesus that? That's the question. And so, I think that there's, there are a lot of people who are banking on some experience. They walked an aisle, they made a decision for Christ, and their hearts are cold toward Him. What Peter's telling us here is that your heart will never be happy enough until you are madly in love with Jesus. And so my question to you this morning is that really, do you love Jesus? Or do you simply agree with some doctrinal tenets that a church puts forth? Because ultimately, what we're trying to do here is to create people who believe as defined by love for Jesus. See, that's that's what I see this verse doing is defining what it means to believe in Jesus. And it means that your heart is um, in love with Him. And so, when I say that, I have to say that the result of that is very simple. It's that you rejoice with joy. Now, the Bible does this sometimes. It like is redundant, right? How else are you going to rejoice if not with joy? So you could just say rejoice, but He doesn't. Why doesn't He? Why do you, must you rejoice with joy? because you're that happy. You're that fully all in. That your love for Jesus is the driving force in your life. And when it is, you rejoice with joy. And it's not just rejoice with joy. It's rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. I mean, it's deeper and more abiding then you can even express. I'm trying to talk about it, but I'm having a hard time. And so, do you, again, this is the question do you? Love Jesus so that it creates in you this rejoicing with joy that you don't really have adequate words for. And see, this is really, this is really the Christian life in a nutshell. Because if I say, you need to be holy, you need to fight sin, what am I saying? I'm saying, you need to believe that the promise of sin is a promise of an inferior happiness. What I am lured toward when I'm lured toward sin is I'm I'm tempted to believe that this is not true, that Jesus is not enough. That Jesus and, and my, my future hope in Him is inadequate for sustaining me in my trials or in my life. And so, I'm looking somehow to medicate my way out of my trouble. I'm looking for something else that will make my heart happy. And nothing, nothing else can contain that level of uh, happiness. And so, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it's filled with glory there is really nothing like jesus i mean that's why we we just think i will arise and go to jesus i mean that's that's what that's what the christian life is about and well i want you to i want you to know your bible i want you to understand theology i want you to get what you need intellectually to be a solid cuz i think I think the Christian faith is a solid intellectual uh, belief. That's not enough. There must be that, and then there must be this heart affection toward God that recognizes my happiness is dependent on the promises of God. And when you love Him, it shapes who you are. This is from uh, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, a book written in the 1600s. Um, I have a, actually have a um, 300-year-old copy of this book on my desk. It's like one of my most prized possessions. Uh it was this book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, that launched the Great Awakening in New England back in the seventeen hundreds. Um, George Whitfield became a Christian reading this book. So that's that's where this comes from. But he says Love is that powerful and prevalent passion by which all the faculties and inclinations of the soul are determined and on which both its perfection and happiness depend. So what he's done there is he has connected my soul's happiness with my love for Jesus, you see. And he says that's what uh, determines the direction of my soul, and that is what makes my happiness uh, complete. And then this next sentence is one of the best sentences in the English language, I think. The worth... And this is also how you know this really old quote, right? The worth... And we don't talk like this anymore. And excellency of the soul is to be measured by the object of its love. In other words, what you love shapes your life. What you love makes you who you are. And so... He says, the worth and excellency of soul is measured by the object of his love. And then he explains what he means. He who loveth mean and sordid things, or mean meaning average and sordid meaning uh, filthy things, doth thereby become base and vile, but a noble well-placed affection doth advance and improve the Spirit into conformity with the perfection which it loves. And so really, if we go back, you know, farther than the the snapshot that we have of the current church that asks for decisions, and you go back to the 1600s, they're talking like this, saying what's really important is the affection of your heart In loving Jesus. And that will shape your life. And so that's why we as a church talk about delighting in God. Because it is that delighting in God that is the aim It's beyond understanding, it's beyond agreeing, it's beyond deciding. It's all the way to a heart that is saturated with love for Jesus. And when that's the case, you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now, I hope you saw what just happened there, right? you love Him, i.e. believe in Him, you'll obtain the salvation of your souls. You don't love Him, okay? then don't expect the salvation of your soul. It is, It is a matter of loving Jesus, which makes your heart happy and fills it with inexpressible joy and makes it full of glory. the reason I say this is because I want this, as your pastor, I want this to to drive everything we do as a church. I hope that the children's ministry is showing Jesus to be beautiful and attractive to the children. I want the, the worship songs that you sing to help your emotion and your affection well up toward Jesus. I hope that whatever instruction you get from the Word here week after week after week makes you happy to be Christian. I want the conversations at Life Group to be such that your job, you understand your job when you're face to face with one another, to be, I'm going to try and help you be happy with Jesus. Would you please do that for me? And that's what a Christian relationship ultimately entails. So the aim of everything we're doing is that so that when we're outside this building and we run into a neighbor or a coworker, and we think about them, we don't want anything but for them to be happier than they currently are. Not temporarily happy. Not happy in something that will ultimately disappoint them, but happier, happier. Eternally happier. And so the, the point of this and this is, this I hope is clear again every week the point is not I want you to leave here with three steps or I want you to leave here with two keys that are going to you know there are no keys there are no steps this is not about you doing anything as a result of this message this is about you aiming higher than merely Agreeing with some facts about Christianity. This is about you and your heart being drawn to a living Savior. Through the power of His Holy Spirit to say, God, won't you make my heart happier than it is right now? That really is the prayer of my heart. For myself. And for you. That your hearts would be happy In Jesus, so that you would delight yourself in God through Jesus. And so that drives everything that we do as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the invitation to come, poor and needy. None of us come and Have it all together. None of us come and expect that You will accept us because we have been um, somehow better than other people. Father, the promise that we have from You is that we'll be accepted and we'll be loved as we come. And so it's just our prayer that You would help us to feel loved by Jesus and then that You would transform us from the inside out that we might in turn love you back. So Father, thank you for the invitation we have here to delight ourselves in you through Jesus. Would you help us to that end? Amen.